Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 35. Boy, we get the opportunity, we get the, the privilege of reading God's Word this morning. Lord, uh, would you, let, let's uh, repeat this prayer after me, would you? Lord, this is your Word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Amen. Amen. Here we begin. We're reading out of the New Living Translation this morning, beginning with verse 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. May God add his blessing to that word. You may be seated. In Matthew 28, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, as a matter of fact, before he ascends into heaven, gives us the Great Commission. He told us to go and make disciples of all the nations, and he said, teach them and baptize them. But what I want you to note is he didn't say, here's what I want you to do. Good luck with that. I'll see you in a few thousand years. That, that's not what he said. Rather, you'll notice in Matthew 28, he promises, here's the commission, here is what you are to do, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So what we are focusing on these last few weeks is as we think about the Great Commission, is to highlight really the the first part of that word, because this is a co-mission. We are invited to join God on this mission. And listen to this truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim to to, to want to be like Jesus, this is the purpose of your life. To to help make disciples. To see his kingdom come. To see up there, come down here. Now, we saw a glimpse of that last week. I so appreciated the testimony of Louis and Briggs and, and Grace and Isabel. Your generosity helped send them to Tanzania in Africa. And we saw the evidence of how God can use ordinary people to do some extraordinary things. We saw how God was able to take that group of, that small group of folks and plant a church in a village where there was none. And we heard how, in a particular way, God had delivered one young lady from blindness itself. It was a true miracle. So we saw how God can do something through people like us. And I just praise the Lord for that. Now, a couple of weeks before that, we noted that scripturally speaking, before God will do something through us, he wants to do something in us. 
And so we looked at that metaphor of the the seeds being scattered that Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And we talked about our soil, the soil of our heart. And we had a soil analysis. How's your heart this morning? Right soil produces a harvest. But God wants to do something in us before he is going to do something through us. But when we come to Matthew chapter 9, it's interesting that Jesus again chooses to use an agricultural metaphor. Now in that day, as you can imagine, most people were familiar with the idea of farming. To add a little context here, in the next chapter, chapter 10, Jesus is going to send out the disciples two by two into the villages and areas of Israel. Now, up to this point, the disciples have been with him. They've been huddled together. They've been with him as he taught. They've been with him as he healed, as he ministered to the crowds. But in chapter 10, what we're about to see is it's going to be their turn. They're going to go out two by two and see how that goes. And what's interesting to me is that these followers go from being called disciples to now they're often called apostles. I thought that was interesting. A disciple, that means it's a student. You could translate it student. Disciple is a student. A student is one who learns, receives, takes in. But an apostle, do you know what that translated as? One sent. So this is a person who goes, gives, shares. So this morning, I want us to think about the harvest around every one of us. If we're going to have God work through us, we know that we need to pray he would help us see people the way that he sees people. Verse 36, let's look at that. When Jesus saw, it begins, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless. You know, perhaps the greatest challenge I can give you this morning is to learn to pray this very simple prayer. Lord, let me see people the way you see people. Jesus, let me see people the way you see people. Notice when Jesus saw the crowd, he wasn't annoyed. He didn't see them as a a hindrance. The Bible says, in fact, that he had compassion on them. And really, it's a stronger word than that. You know, in Greek, there are many words for compassion. This is the strongest of those words. It is a deep sense of empathy. So this is not driving down the road when uh, you see a homeless person on the corner, and as you turn the corner, you, you look over and you feel sorry for him for a moment, but then you move on and your day goes on just as it did. That's not what this is. What Jesus sees is it's a person, parent, standing next to a child's bed in the hospital where the child is barely breathing, struggling for every breath, and that parent would do anything it takes to alleviate that child's suffering. That's the kind of compassion we're talking about here. That's when he feels, that's what he feels when he he sees this crowd. Now, if you notice... In Matthew, Matthew especially points this out in many different ways, but I'll give you a a few, that the disciples struggled with this. They often saw the crowds as an annoyance. 
In Matthew 14, you'll remember that there's a great crowd that comes to hear Jesus speak. But it's getting late in the day. The people are getting hungry. And the disciples suggest to Jesus, send them away. Let them get their food. And Jesus says, no, we're going to take care of them. Let's provide food for them. In the very next chapter, in Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman cries out and says, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering. And she keeps crying out. In fact, the Lord Jesus does not respond immediately. In verse 23, however, it says, Then the disciples urged Jesus, send her away. She is bothering us with all of her begging. Jesus, could you tell her to move along? She's getting annoying. Now, notice they didn't say, why don't you heal her, Jesus? No, she's getting annoying. We're tired of it. And in fact, it's almost as if Jesus were wanting to teach them a lesson, and he's waiting so he could teach these disciples a lesson this moment, so he could, he could share something with them. He could do something in them. And so he stops, and he gives his attention to the woman. He pays attention to her, and he heals her daughter. In Matthew 19, the people want to bring their children to Jesus. They want Jesus to, to, to hold them and bless them and pray for them. You remember what the disciples do. The disciples are like, no, this is not a good time. Hey, he is busy. He doesn't have time for these kids. You need to take the kids and go somewhere else. But Jesus admonishes his disciples. He says, no, bring the little children to me. Isn't it interesting? If you want God to work through us, then we need to say first, Jesus, let me see people the way you see people. Jesus, give me your eyes. Help me see that I am literally surrounded by a harvest. Now, folks, that's not always easy to pray. It's hard to pray that prayer when you can't stand your coworkers. It's hard to pray that prayer when you get upset and you're angry with your neighbor or you really don't care for your classmates. To be honest, some of you are not really looking forward to the summer trip to your wife's family. It's hard to pray that prayer. Think about this, and I could develop this more, believe me, but how many times are we like, God, work through me, but could you just take all of these needy people out of my life? Boy, that would make it easier. And that's the point. In verse 36, Jesus sees the crowds, and it says he saw they were confused and they were helpless. We live in a world full of confusion. The word there could also be translated as troubled or even harassed. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago where we, where we were discussing the church's response to all the issues related to gender confusion. We spent a day there. But one of the statistics that just haunted me, according to the most recent statistics, 27% of California youth, that's youth between the ages of 13 and 18, identify as gender non-conforming or neither completely male or female. 27%. Now, where do they get that? 
50% of millennials believe that gender is non-binary, male and female, but exists on a, a spectrum. The world is confused. We live in an information age, but let's face it, people are confused. And we're seeing that. And that's just one example, of course. And and here's the thing. This doesn't mean, this doesn't mean we get mad at them. This doesn't mean we just hope they go away. Notice how Jesus saw. Notice how Jesus sees. Jesus says, this is an opportunity for harvest. When somebody is confused, there's an opportunity to speak truth and life into them. They might be helpless. There are people who just can't fix things on their own. And they're broken and they don't know what to do next. But Jesus looks out into the crowd and he just recognizes these people are confused. They're helpless. What an opportunity. And and, and as I thought about that this morning, I I thought about this crowd. I thought about you and how many times I've stood in front of you. And I know that at times you look confused because you're listening to me, and I get that. But I also know that there are a lot of times that that I look out and most of you look like you're you're pretty together. You're not confused. You're not troubled. But then I thought, you know, you don't look helpless. You don't look confused, perhaps, but... But we all are. We are pretty good at putting on a face on Sunday morning or on social media, letting people think and see what we want them to see. But what happens when the miracle of grace comes into a community like ours and we begin to see people the way Jesus sees people? Let me remind you this morning, and boy, this is as sure as sure can be, you will never meet a person who is not facing some kind of battle. So when you walk into this place, just know this. You have an opportunity to encourage someone today. Someone needs a word from you. Don't leave this place without making a connection and cheering and and encouraging somebody. But everyone you meet is going to face some kind of battle. Jesus, would you let us be a part of fulfilling your mission in someone else's life? I've been uh, thinking about this all week, but psychologists have begun to talk about something in our culture that is becoming more and more evident, and it's what's called the bystander effect. Are you aware of this? The bystander effect. This is a phenomenon when someone sees something going wrong right in front of them, but they do nothing about it. Okay, you got the picture? This has become more recognized because in our day of cell phones, we, get, we, we understand, and videos with their phones, we understand actually that this happens quite a bit. There's a popular meme I've seen recently that demonstrates what I'm talking about. Let's, let's bring that up on the screen here. I don't know if you've seen this, but your child is being eaten by a camel. Do you save your child or take a photo? Obviously, we know what happened here, right? I love that. But of course, you know, th- this can be very serious too. Maybe this was, we just don't know. But uh, in, in Kansas City, a young lady was assaulted in the middle of the day in a parking lot. Ten people witnessed it. Two people recorded on their phones. 
Nobody called the police. Nobody intervened. Nobody does anything. Now, what psychologists would say is, it's not that those people are evil or wicked. It's this bystander effect. This is where we we see a need, but we don't think of ourselves as the responder. We are a concerned bystander. We we care, but we're not going to do anything about it. Now, what is behind the bystander effect? Well, I've thought about this and kind of have three suggestions. One of the popular assumptions is, is that someone else will do something. Surely, someone else will do something. So, so we see a need and we look around and we think, wow, there are a lot of people here. So everyone assumes that someone will do something. But nobody does anything, so nothing gets done. Everyone looks around and says, and in our case, well, I'm sure the harvest is plentiful, but look, somebody else will take care of this. Somebody else will go on that mission trip. Somebody else will volunteer. Somebody else will lead that small group. Somebody else will step up. Someone else who makes more than I do will surely help in the ministry of the church. I'm sure that someone else will invite them to church. I'm sure someone else will share the gospel with them. Someone else will take care of the sick and the poor. It's it's where I recognize the need. I see it, and it's not that I don't care. I'm just sure somebody else will take care of it. And so we stand by. Now, there's another theory of the bystander effect, and that's rationalizing, well... What can I really do? I'm not really qualified. I don't have the resources. I'm not old enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not gifted enough. Eugene Peterson said the reason why a lot of people don't get involved in a mission is because of Afghanistanitis. And what he meant by that is, well, really the big places to make a difference in, uh, in the world are on the other side of the world. There are places like Afghanistan or Tanzania, and that's where it has to be done. And I'm just not there, so, you know, and we stand by. But there's another reason for the bystander effect, and for me, this is pretty simple. It's fear. We're afraid to get involved. Maybe, in fact, you're afraid that you've disqualified yourself. I'm not worthy. Just not worthy to do that. In Matthew 9, in fact, what's interesting to me when you think about that is that at the beginning of this chapter, Matthew, who, by the way, is a tax collector is called by Jesus to join the ranks of these disciples. A tax collector was, the, was reviled in, in Jewish culture of that day because he had compromised with the Romans. He was taxing the, uh, the Jews. So, so he was hated, and yet Jesus looks at him and says, Hey, come follow me. Come on mission with me. You're qualified. Kevin Carter was a photojournalist. In 1993, Kevin was in Sudan, Africa. He was documenting the human suffering of famine and the AIDS epidemic of that day. And he took this disturbing photo. Some of you may recall it. The the girl was weak and alone. She was literally trying to crawl to an AIDS food station 
and then of course we see this vulture waiting nearby, waiting for her to die. The story is told that Carter waited for 20 minutes for the vulture to spread its wings because he thought the picture would be better. But that didn't happen, and so he took it as is. It's reported that after he took the picture, he did scare the vulture away, and then he left the girl because something else caught his eye. He won a Pulitzer for the photo, And did you know that people began to ask the question, well, what about the girl? What happened to her? Kevin Carter didn't know. He got pounded for that. He got a lot of hate. He tried to explain, you don't understand what it's like there. You don't understand. It is everywhere. You are surrounded by it. What could I do? What was I supposed to do? He won a Pulitzer Prize for that picture. He went home And he took his own life. Now, you know what occurs to me? Millions saw that picture. What did they do? What did I do? Very easy to look at other people and say, well, why don't you do something? Why don't I do something? Some of us think, Lord, give me a sign. You give me a burning bush, I'll follow. Lord, give me a sign. But this is what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 9. For Jesus, the need is the sign. Look out. Look at the helpless. Look at the confused. There is a harvest everywhere, and we are all called to do something. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, wake you up. So what I see in this passage is there are a few things that we can do, and I want you to take this with you this morning. First, Jesus says we can pray. First, we can pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. So we need to pray prayers like this. And by the way, Wednesday night, we've just had a wonderful little fellowship. Wednesday night at seven o'clock, one of the things we're doing is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leading. John Bartos is helping me where we get together and we're praying. We'd love to have you. We pray for an hour. That's all we do. We pray for an hour. But one of the prayers we need to be praying is, Lord, help me to see people as you see them. Lord, raise up people for the harvest. And let me tell you what happens, though. You begin to pray prayers like that, what happens? Listen, you become the answer to that prayer. God gets seriously working in your life. Be careful, because you could become the answer to that prayer. Lord, send workers out into the harvest. Isn't it interesting that Matthew 10, Jesus sends out two by two these disciples. We pray, but secondly... We send. Secondly, we can send. In Romans 10, Paul writes, How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Listen, my friends, one of the things that we can do is send. 
There are people who are willing to go, and we get the privilege of supporting them and sending them. And and we should be lined up to send them. In other words, we don't write a check to someone to go on a mission trip and expect a thank you note. We ought to be the ones who say, you're allowing me to participate in this mission that God has called you on. Thank you. We'll write them the note to say, thank you for letting me be a part of it. If, if we've got people willing to go and go into ministry and go into the mission field, we get the opportunity to send. In the church, it should not be that people who are willing to go should have to beg for money, beg for money so, so that they can go. We should be begging them for the chance to send them. What a privilege. What a privilege. So we can do something. We, we, we can pray, we can send, and we can go. One pastor I heard recently say, a church shouldn't be known for its seating capacity. It ought rather to be known for its sending capacity. I thought about that. One of the things that the Lord continues to show me in ministry, and this is something it's taken me probably way too long to figure out, but to a large degree, the success of our ministry is not about how many come to our church, but how many are sent from our church. How many among us hear the call in some way, whether it's a mission field, whether it's ministry on a part-time basis, full-time basis, on a volunteer calling basis, whatever it is. But how many of us have heard the call, we prayed the prayer, and God has spoken, and we're on the move? How many of us launch out? This morning, I want to introduce you to to a young man. Uh, Many of you know him, but Jack, uh, come on up here, my friend. Uh, Jack is uh, Jack Yeager, and he is joining us this morning. Uh, let me see, is this one? Yeah, thank you. Jack uh, is joining us this summer. He's going to be a ministry intern, a youth ministry intern, and we're really looking forward to the next. Uh, yeah, you can you can say woo woo. Thank you. <laughs> Jack's a great young guy, uh, came through the ranks of our church. I wanted him to kind of introduce you, and we're going to do this very quickly. There's a lot more to his story. I want you to know his story, but uh, we're going to just kind of uh, introduce him this morning. But I do want to ask you, Jack, just briefly, tell us how you came to Christ. So I would say I always considered myself a Christian, um, but I don't think I really knew what that meant. Um, I wasn't following Christ. I just kind of considered being a Christian, believing in God. And so um, I, let's see, junior year of high school, um, I, my best friend Owen Roach over there um, invited me to our uh, fall retreat here for the youth group. And during, once I got, or let's see, so he invites me to the fall retreat and he tells me about all these extravagant games and this amazing thing that we're going to play all these games. It's going to be awesome. Such a fun time. And then a couple days beforehand, he goes, oh, and by the way, we're also going to be worshiping and doing some Bible study. I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right, whatever. I'll suffer through that part for the, for the awesome games. And um, so we get to, the, get to the retreat, and like the very first thing we do is worship. And I'm standing there surrounded by these kids who are worshiping God and singing out loud, and I'm like, man, what a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
but through that night and through the next day, God really worked in my heart. And um, I, I think probably the second worship session of the day around lunch, I started singing a little bit. And I'm like, man, this is, yeah. Um, and so <laughs> uh, by, by Saturday night, um, I was worshiping loudly and proudly. And like I had finally, I, for the first time in my life, I came to the conclusion that there is a God out there and he wants to have a relationship with me. Amen. <laughs> and Amen. that was truly incredible. And so it, it took a little time to process, but um, by the next day I had decided that I wanted to devote my life to Christ. Amen. Amen. That's love. I love it. I love it. Praise the Lord. Now, it's one thing. So you, you had God do this amazing thing in your life, call you to himself, this personal relationship. But God had something else in store for you. You... You have gone to Cedarville University. You have a sense of call. Tell us about your call and how God called you into ministry, and, and for this summer at least, to be here. But, but kind of overall, where, where do you believe God is, is speaking to you right now? So it all kind of started uh, last year. So I was uh, majoring in marketing at uh, one of Ohio State's branch campuses. And I had gotten this really close group of uh, Christian friends there, and uh, one of the girls sent in this group chat that we had, um, do you guys think it's more important to enjoy your job or to be financially stable? And so everyone's given their two cents on this. And I said, basically, um, I want to make a lot of money so that I can help a lot of people. And I started thinking about that answer, though, and I was thinking about it. I'm like, is that really my motivation? Do I want to make money to help people or so that I can be comfortable and so that there will be more left over after I give. <laughs> and so I started thinking more, and I'm like, is this what God wants for my life, or is this what I want for my life? Mm-hmm. And so I started praying, and uh, at this point, I was at this after I'd sent the text, I got in the car, and I was driving back from campus. And so at this point, I'm driving, and um, I finish with my prayer, and the very next, or I asked I ask God, I'm like, if, if this isn't what you want, then show me. And so the very next song that came on, um, the ra- came on the radio is called uh, He Knows My Name. I think that's the title. But basically it says that I don't need my name in lights. I'm famous in my father's eyes. And so that just kind of like blew me away. And I was like, okay, so this, I don't think this is where God wants me. And so through a lot of prayer, um, and I started thinking about it. And I was like, well, what else would I be good at? And I was like, well, I love speaking in public, um, and I love arguing. <laughs> and uh, we, had been, we had been doing some apologetics um, in youth group. We had gone to an apologetics conference, and we um, had been going through an apologetics book with a couple of um, the people in the youth group. And so I decided, or I, I was thinking about that more, and I'm like, well, that, I would honestly love to do that. And so that's kind of what got me to Cedarville. Um, I decided, I figured out that I don't have the foundation of biblical knowledge to become an apologist. Um, I need to know what I'm defending before I start defending it. And so I uh, decided to major in biblical studies at Cedarville. And then uh, slowly through that, God kind of guided me and showed me that maybe apologetics isn't where he wants me right now. Um, I don't know that it's not something in the future, but right. I kind of figured out that all the people up there on stage who are speaking about this and who are answering these questions, 
they have a vast knowledge that they've gained over their lifetime, and I just don't have the wisdom to do that yet. And so I was thinking about it more and through a lot of prayer, and God just kind of guided me towards uh, youth ministry, and I was like, this is perfect. This is where this is where it all started for me, and so I want to start it for other people. And Amen. Amen. Well, congratulations. That's really wonderful to hear. One more question. You're helping out with youth ministry this summer. What would you say to a young person, maybe here this morning, part of the crowd, uh, who may not be a part of our youth ministry? What do you want them to know? What would you like them to hear? Um, so, I think the big thing is, when the Bible talks about like the church, it's it talks about the church as a family and that we, we are to love one another and live life with one another and bear each other's burdens and just be with one another. And so I guess just, just, coming, to a sun, just coming to the service on Sunday and come, or coming in right before it starts and leaving right after, it, that, that just doesn't, that doesn't do that. You don't get to live life with these, with these people. And this is, the church is a, a gift from God. We're supposed to be family, and so I guess I guess that kind of goes out to everyone. Is if you're not involved, then you're not getting the full benefits of this gift that God has given us. Amen. But um, the youth group has really, I mean, changed my life. Like I don't know where I would have, I don't know where I'd be without the youth group. Um, I mean, obviously this is this is where I came to follow Christ, and this is where my relationship with Christ bloomed and. Um, was what led me towards ministry, um, yeah. that, that foundation of who God is. And so if you're not in youth group, you're really missing out. Um, they welcomed me with open arms, and I know they'll do the same for you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it, brother. So we look forward to some good things going on this summer in our youth ministry with, along with Adrian and all the young people that are there. I just want to close with this idea. Listen, we're talking about the will of God, and I've basically as clearly as I can express God's will. God's will for you? You're a young person? God's will for you is to, uh, to, to be engaged in mission. Whatever that means in your context, but found people, find people, saved people, will serve people. That's what happens. I guess in another way, I would say it this way, it's not God's will for your life, that you just passively, day after day, go to work, punch in, don't get involved in your coworker's life, don't understand what they're going through, and then you make it through the day, you go home, you watch TV, you spend uh, the evening watching uh, whatever episodes are on, and then you go to bed late at night and you start all over again. That is not... God's will. It is not God's will for your greatest passion to be as, to make as much money as you can and then enjoy it. I don't believe God's will for you is that you play video games like a, all night, like a little boy when you're a man. <laughs> I see that so many times. It's not God's will that the highlight of your week be the Amazon delivery guy when he shows up at your door. It's not God's will that we all retire as millionaires and spend the 20 or 30 years figuring out what to do and find new ways to entertain ourselves. It's not God's will that as Americans we spend, and we do, we spend three times as much money on our pets 
as we do on reaching the lost and hurting around the world. That's not God's will. It's God's will that you pray. So let us pray. It's God's will that you send. So let us send. It's God's will that you go. So let us go. We need to see as Jesus saw. We need to pray as Jesus prayed so that we will do as Jesus did. Let's pray together. Father, as we close, I thank you for the challenge of this word. I pray, Lord, that we would be your ministering agents in this hurting world. The harvest is plentiful. The world is filled with those who are confused and helpless. Lord, help us. May we do something. May we see as you see. May we, Lord, pray that you would send out workers into the harvest. And if you call us, Lord, let us joyfully say yes. I pray this in your name. Amen.